All right, it's good to be with you tonight. Uh, we'll be thinking together over Romans chapter 9, verse 16. So if you would like to open your Bibles to follow along, I'll give you a moment to do so. I suspect in a crowd that frequents a church like this, you probably only heard as far as Romans chapter 9 and doctrine of election was flashing through your mind's eyes. You <laughs> consider what's, what's to come. And I bet that for many of us, the Reformed articulation of the doctrine is a big comfort to us. However, I also realize that for some, the teaching of unconditional election can be a tough pill to swallow at first, and it's maybe led to some divisive conversations and perhaps hurt relationships among dear friends and family. And it's to the second group of hearers that I hope to clarify the need for God's sovereign election and his plan, and I pray you will receive the most encouragement and experience a great swell of praise for God. And for the first group, well, I doubt I'll do much justice to all you've read and heard, especially even this morning from our brother Jeremiah. Um, However, I do pray that you too will be edified tonight. So uh, reading verse 16, it says, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. Contextually, this statement by the Apostle Paul takes place under a lament for his fellow Jews, who though they have received a rich spiritual heritage, I do not find themselves in right standing with God. And although this might seem on the surface that, mean, that this means God's promises, which are wrapped up in that heritage, have failed, Paul says that this is not the case. And he clarifies through the historical events of their heritage that it has always been the way of God to choose whom he will before they do anything noteworthy, indeed, before they were even born. And from this verse, we see the true basis for why anyone is chosen into God's family And we also learn much about the nature of mankind and the supremely contrasting nature of God. In this verse, there is much comfort to be received for the tired and weary soul. And so from this verse, we will find much cause for praise for our Heavenly Father. So first, let us note mankind's utter inability to save himself. For what does our verse say? It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Mankind can do much, but he cannot save himself. Last week, we recent, my family and I drove to Nebraska, and the usual response to a drive like that is, it's very uninspiring and boring. But this is not so. The vast Midwest is God's good creation too, and we found the sprawling landscape quite amazing and praiseworthy. Additionally, though, especially as you enter some stretches of I-80, where the road literally forms a straight line to the horizon, I was struck by the ingenuity and fortitude of man. Here I was, hurling along at 80 miles an hour. Did I say 80? I mean, 70 miles an hour. (laughs) And it, it barely feels like you're moving. And I began to imagine what it must have been like to build this road. Picture what it must be like to come to work every day as a worker, chipping away at this crazy idea to build a highway across America. And then I was aware of how smooth the road was. I thought of the huge amount of asphalt and other materials that was needed to prepare and finish this road. I imagined how far they moved gravel from some hole in the ground somewhere only to dump it in the middle of nowhere and smooth it down. Mile after mile, after hundreds of miles. And all of this is truly a feat of engineering. And this is just a road. When one combines all the various infrastructures of society that are working together to uphold and maintain our way of life, Things like energy production, transportation, food production, 
water provision, sanitary services, it becomes mind-blowing. And it's little surprise that among all this, the vanity of man should think there is nothing he can accomplish. Certainly mankind can devise much to make his life better, but he cannot save himself. And this is what we find in the epistle to the Romans. The very first premise of the Apostle Paul's proclamation of the gospel in the opening chapters to mankind is that he's in trouble, whether Gentile or Jew. Of the Gentile, he explains that natural revelation, the things that we can discern about God from nature that is visible to every one of us, is sufficient to condemn us on the day of judgment because we would rather suppress the very basic facts of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature. He shows that our natural tendency is that when presented with the light of true knowledge, we would rather shrink deeper into dark ignorance. To this one might respond that maybe this is not a fair judgment, that maybe if only God would provide a fuller revelation of himself, then mankind would no longer be predisposed to shrink away. On the face of it, there is maybe some understandable reason to this line of thinking. However, this is actually the circumstance of the Jew who does indeed have God's law a law given by many signs and wonders, a law that clarifies the transcendent, true, and living God and describes how we ought to worship him. But what does the Apostle Paul describe as the outcome of the Jew with all this beautiful light? They merely prove themselves to be transgressors. Having been given the law and tasked with teaching it, they only show that they break these very laws. Therefore, what can be inferred from both these descriptions of mankind's ability when handling matters of spiritual life we could only conclude that man is unable to save himself. Indeed, this is what the apostle says in chapter 3 when he declares that, no, there are none who are righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. When given knowledge, he suppresses it. When given commandments, he breaks them. There are no, no exceptions. There are none who are righteous. When man acts under his own power, he only condemns himself. Another thing that we learn about mankind from this verse is his unwilling heart to be saved. To state it differently, man is unwilling to be saved on his own terms, namely by his self-will and exertion. Although in our prior point we saw that man is unable to save himself, we should note that man can demonstrate himself to be very religious. For example, the Gentile might suppress the truth of God, but how does he do this? He does it by worshiping the created, instead of the Creator. His pleasure is in perverting the gifts of God instead of walking in their purposes. That is, given any instruments that should lead to glorifying God, man insists on using them on his own terms instead of God's. And we see a similar pattern in the life of the Jew who has God's law. When given a covenant that bears witness to needing a righteousness from God, the heart of man insists on attaining that righteousness for himself through self-exertion. And this is at the root of the Apostle's lament for the Jewish people, a people given every spiritual privilege beyond what could be expected, pursued the righteousness of God as though it was a law by works, something deserved because of their heritage, something to be maintained by their habits of observance. And so it's worth pausing here and reflecting on how we treat our spiritual heritage. We live in a time of history when Christian faith has spread far and wide, And for quite some time now, the societies we have grown up in have been deeply marked and formed by the Christian ethic that even the unbeliever takes for granted concepts of justice and liberty. Do you, hearer, presume on God's righteousness 
I'm sorry, on, the, on your righteousness, merely because your lifestyle and habits of observance include ideas of God, prayer, and church going? Do you count yourself worthy of heaven because you attend church regularly, because you, li- you live a nice moral life? Let us take heed that we do not think we are righteous like God merely because of our Christian lifestyle. Having learned about the true ability of man, let us see what we can learn of God in our verse. The first thing we should note about God is that God has the power to save. And this is a simple conclusion from the fact that if it does not depend on man, but on God, as our text says, then God has the power to save. What a hope-inducing, joy-producing truth this is. God can save sinful people. That is you and me. Instead of everyone facing the due penalty of their sin, produced by their self-willed, self-exerting works, instead of facing a holy God's just punishment for these things, we find that indeed there are people who are saved by God. This is the account of the Bible. From beginning to end, we read of God's plan of redemption played out through the patriarchs, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, nurtured in the the nation of Israel, secured in the life and death of Jesus Christ and applied by the Spirit to the church throughout the world and history. God called Abraham. God brought Isaac out of a barren womb. God chose Jacob over his brother Esau. God rescued Israel from Egypt. God put forward Jesus, and God builds his church. But how does he do this? What is the power of God that saves? How can the wicked be made righteous with God? In Corinthians 1.18, it says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what is this word of the cross? That Jesus Christ, having put, been put forward as a satisfaction for sin by his death, has attained a redemption to be received by faith for all who believe. And this is the Apostle Paul's gospel in Romans 3, verses 21 to 31, verses well worth memorizing. And there he goes to great lengths to explain that this righteousness of God is through faith in Christ and not some law of works. Through the subsequent chapters of the epistle, he goes on to demonstrate how it is that the law of faith proves it is the very power of God because it manifests itself in the believer with a true love for God such that we are now inclined and empowered to obey God's law. This is contrasted with the law on its own, which only inflames sin within man, leading to his condemnation. So God has the power to save us in Christ. Amen. But see what other precious truth we learn from our verse tonight. In contrast to man's unwilling heart to be saved, note God's willing heart to save. For what does the verse say? It depends on God who has mercy. God doesn't have to save us. Punishing wrongdoers is not vindictive. Removing evil to cleanse the land is not cruel. This is what we actually expect from our earthly rulers. How much more so should we expect true and complete justice from the heavenly king? God is eternally praiseworthy for his just character. One day, with the shroud of sin removed from our eyes, we will all approve of God's judgments. So the crux of the matter arises. The real question is not why are only some people saved? The question is, why is anyone saved? And the answer is because God is merciful, and his mercy is motivated by his love for us. So all praise be to God. And when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive in the righteousness of Christ. 
that when we walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, he gave us new hearts that we might walk in obedience and become slaves to righteousness. That when, because of our very nature, we were children of wrath, he made us sons of God and co-heirs with Christ, in whom we are raised up and seated in the heavenly places. So now what do we think of the teaching of sovereign election? Do we now see why it is necessary that only God can save us? We are unable to do it. We lack the desire and the will for it. Even our best efforts are polluted with the wrong motivations. We need someone else to step in. And thanks be to God that he does. He alone has the power to save, and in his love, he is rich in mercy to do so. Let's pray. Almighty and merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself and your ways in it. Thank you for your loving kindness that manifests in mercy for fallen creatures. Thank you for Christ and his atoning death that provides the full and satisfactory merit to secure our redemption. Cause us, Father, to live boldly and confidently for Christ and the gospel and the knowledge of your love for us, a love from which nothing can separate us. We pray all this, Father, to the glory of your name, now and forever. Amen.